I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway, and I'll be bringing the message this morning. And as Ali said, we are starting a new series today. Uh, we call it Three Words That Change Everything. Uh, today we're going to be looking at an Old Testament passage of the Bible where an ancient Israelite prophet named Isaiah has an epic encounter with God. Uh, it changes his life, changes the trajectory of his life forever. So we're going we're gonna to sit with Isaiah today um, as he goes through this encounter, and we're going to see through his lens, uh, we're going to look at the, the confrontation that God has with him. Uh, we're going to look at the uh, confession that, that Isaiah uh, gives. We're going to look at his cleansing, and then we're going to look at his call so uh, the four C is the confrontation, um, the confession, the cleansing, and, and the call. So um, uh, pray with me. Lord, you know that we are, we're inundated with words. We, we're, just, we're just under an avalanche of words every day. They're spoken, they're printed, uh, podcasts and blogs and conversations and uh, all kinds of media, and we're, God, we're, we're, um, we're under an avalanche of words, and yet, and yet you have made us, you have made us to be creatures who live on your words. And Lord, I know for today, some of us are starving. We're starving for your words. I'm also well aware, Lord, of my utter inadequacy to deliver this. And I know that that's, um, that probably doesn't matter. <laughs> so, Lord, we need to hear from you today. We need to hear your words. And we, we remember the promise that you gave us uh, when you said to your people of old, you said, open up your mouths wide. Open your mouths and I will fill them. So today, Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to... We want to come to you hungry. We want to open up our mouths wide. And uh, we, we trust and believe that you're going you're gonna to feed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to pick this up in um, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. So I invite you to follow along. Um, I'm old school here. I killed a tree for this. Uh, those of you that are more ecologically sound, you're going to look on your phones or your electronic devices, or you can look on the screen. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and I'll, I'll start off. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. But This is Isaiah speaking, by the way. Um, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the hem, the hem of, of his royal robe um, filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thres thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So the year is about 740 B.C. And King Uzziah has led Israel for about 40 years. And um, good years, uh, prosperity. Um, Israel was doing well, uh, prosperous and, um, you know, wealthy for for most of those years. Um, And also for most of those years, he was a godly king. Uh, But in his later years, unfortunately, he let his power go to his head. Uh, did, did something foolish. He tried to erase the boundaries between the king and, and the priests. Uh, he actually went into the temple um, and tried to offer uh, uh, incense like he was a Levite. Um, and he was, he was actually struck with leprosy. Uh, uh, white as a ghost, uh, struck with leprosy. And while he was in decline, Assyria, the great power to the north, had gotten stronger, and in gaining strength, had begun to threaten and even attack little Israel. So the nation is not in a good place. Israel is not in a good place. Um, if this were America, and I'm, I'm going to conflate some decades here, uh, if, if this were America, um, J- JFK has just been assassinated. Um, and 9-11, not September 11th, is underway. So uh, the nation is facing disarray, disorientation, and disaster. So Isaiah, an upper-class, educated Israelite, probably a priestly class, has what we would call a vision. What does he see? We're going to call this part Isaiah's confrontation. Um, need to start off by saying that this, this encounter with God is 100% engineered and initiated by God. Isaiah did not manufacture this. He didn't gin this up. This is all God-generated. It did not depend on Isaiah's education or his resume. He did not initiate or control it. He received it. First of all, where, where does the vision take place? It's in the temple. So the temple, as you know, um, uh, going back to the time of Moses, okay, where the tabernacle was the, was the portable, uh, portable temple where God met with his people, And then uh, coming into the time of King David, King David gave instruction to his son Solomon to build a permanent house for God and a house where where God's people can meet with God. So Isaiah is in the temple uh, designated as a place to meet with God, and he he sees God in this vision. Now, interestingly, um, Isaiah doesn't describe God directly. We don't hear about what God looks like. There are no descriptions of his face, as we will later see uh, somewhat in the book of Revelation. For scale, just to get an idea of the scale, we read that God's train, which is just the hem of his royal robe, completely fills the temple. But what Isaiah sees is that 
God is on his throne. I think there's a point we need to make here. Um, you know, the, the king is dead. Um, Israel's throne is empty, but the real king of Israel is still on his throne. I need to make an immediate application here for us. Israel is in turmoil, but God is still on his throne. Is it fair to say that we live in a nation that is in some turmoil? You think? Uh, the economy is up, and then it's down. Uh, there's wars. There's a war going on in Europe, and there are wars all over the, the world. Uh, there's rumors of wars. Okay, I said, I said country. Uh, shootings. Uh, shooting, what, last weekend in Tyson's Corner? In the mall? This is out of control. And even for some of you, let's, let's bring it personally to home, your lives are in turmoil. Your, your job situation is, is uncertain. Um, you, have, you have problems. You have challenges. Um, some of you are sick. You have, you have some chronic illness or something that you're dealing with now. Um, some of you are dealing with uh, the residue of, of two and a half years of weirdness as we've gone through a major pandemic. Um, others of you are dealing with some deep disappointment in your lives. Life has not turned out the way I've wanted it. Others of you, uh, mental health issues, anxiety, deep, deep depression. You're in the pit. You don't know how to get out. So we need to look with Isaiah, and we need to see with his lens that God is on his throne. And I, need, uh, I feel like I need to answer an accusation. Uh, you Christians, okay, you say God is on, on his throne Okay, that's some kind of pious fiction, isn't that? Uh, you, you're trying to use that to comfort yourselves because um, your life is not going so well, and you're going to use that to pull away from engagement in life and kind of curl in on yourself, and absolutely false. That's false. For those, those of us who have absorbed this truth into our beings, that we've allowed this to seep into our bones, that God is on his throne, this is no pious fiction. Uh, instead, this is the power behind us. This is the power working in us. This is an engine that drives us, that empowers us, that expands our vision, that causes us to move out with energy and confidence and boldness. Amen? That was weak. But God is on his throne. Isaiah realizes, too, God is not alone. Isaiah sees other beings attending God. Seraphs, or as it says... Uh, the seraphim, and that's a, a direct transliteration from the Hebrew that uh, our English translation is based on. A good, a good translation might be burning ones. Uh, these may be the living creatures uh, referred to in the book of Revelation. And they're moving. They have wings. How odd. Notice that Isaiah sees their wings covering their faces and their feet. Um, they cover their faces because the brightness of God will, will overwhelm them. And they're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're calling to one another. Just as John did a few minutes ago where uh, group, uh, group one and two, there was no group three. Actually, we spoke to each other. We spoke God's word to each other. Um, the seraphim are calling to each other and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy is one of those special words in the Bible. You know, we don't have any real counterparts to this in our everyday speech. I challenge you, 
uh, if you could name a conversation um, in the last uh, two weeks at work or any kind of group you were part of where, where the word holy came up. Um, no, you're, it's, it's just one of those words. It just doesn't seem to fit in, in everyday speech. Um, why is that? Some of the connotations for, the, for holy uh, in the Bible is, is um, set apart. Uh, something is holy if it's set apart. Uh, also, morally upright is, is holy. Um, and Isaiah hears, hears this in a song repeated over and over again, holy, holy, holy. You know, it's interesting, in the Hebrew language, um, if you want to intensify something, you repeat it. If you want to, uh, you know, superlatize something, you, you repeat it. And here's what I mean. Uh, for, for example, in Genesis 14.10, it, um, it's trying to describe an area that's, that has a lot of pits in it, uh, full, full of pits. And, and uh, literally in the Hebrew, it says pits, pits. Um, 2 Kings 25.15 uh, describing uh, so- solid gold, something that's solid gold is, is literally gold gold. This is the only place in the entire Bible where we see a threefold repetition. Holy, holy, holy. In other words, real, real holy. What would this have meant to Isaiah? Well, I think he knows this. I think... I think um, he would have gotten this right on a test, I think, if you put multiple choice in front of Isaiah. Um, okay, question one, is Yahweh holy, true or false? Um, I think he would have gotten that right, um, but I think he knew it here, but not here. I think he knew it in his gob, but not in his gut. And I think the same for us today. Uh, we who are Christians, we know this is a theological fact, but for some of us, it, it's, it's not yet seeped into our spiritual bones. God is other. He is other. He is unique. He is set apart. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But why reveal God's holiness here at this time? Um, why, why not other attributes of God, right? We know that God is love. We know that God is, is just. Uh, why, why, why God's holiness here at this time? I believe what's happening here is God is setting the foundations for Isaiah. Isaiah, if you're going to speak for me, you need to know who I am. And this is who I am. I'm holy. I'm different. I'm set apart. I'm perfect. The purpose of God displaying his holiness here is to counteract something. The purpose of God displaying his holiness here is to counteract um, the universal human tendency to try to remake God in our image. We want to remake God in our image. Um, the Bible has a word for that tendency. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. Now, now th- this takes a few different forms. I mean, one form of idolatry is when we take something really good, like pleasure. Okay, and I like pleasure. Okay, take it really good, rip it out of its context, and then elevate it to something ultimate. That's one way we do idolatry. Um, Take something good and we blow it out of proportion uh, to something that it's just not meant to be. Um, But there's something in us that wants to take God and we want to reshape him. We want to make him mm, more manageable, right? Right? 
We want to domesticate God. There's something in us that wants to take the Lion of Judah and defang him, take out his claws. And I'll say this, I don't think there's a country on the planet that does this with more energy. I don't think there's a nation on the earth that attempts this reshaping of God with more vigor than the people of the United States of America. Here's what I mean. Uh, around 20 years ago, uh, there was a sociological survey. So um, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, two sociologists, um, they did some research with teenagers, and they, they basically wanted to know, okay, American teenagers, what, what do they believe? Like, what's, you know, what's churning in them, you know, that, about God and about spirituality? And they, they published a book in 2005, it's called Soul Searching. And it was the result of their research um, into the beliefs of American teenagers. And, and they, they identified something, a phenomenon, uh, that they called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll say that again, it's a mouthful. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And what, what, what moralistic therapeutic deism is, it's, a, it's a, a core of beliefs that characterize the thinking and behavior of the group. I actually have some of these on the, on the screen here. So what, what is this? Well, it's, um, here are some of the beliefs. Um, belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. So I'm here, God's there, and the never the twain meets. Um, people are supposed to be good to each other. Okay, people are supposed to be good to each other. That is, you know, moral. Uh, good, good is not defined, but we're supposed to be good to each other. Um, what is the purpose of life? The universal, universal, the universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. There are no absolute moral truths. That's truth for you, but I have my truth, and you have yours. God allows good people into heaven. Not sure how to define good people, um, okay. um, but they're allowed in. And God places very limited demands on people. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and say, all right, you know, this is, look, teenagers, right? I mean, we don't expect them to have, like, you know, fully formed and, and well-articulated, you know, um, sophisticated theological um, statements, you know, at their fingertips, right? That's not fair. Um, but here's the thing. You know, a lot of research and, and sub, uh, subsequent studies have, have gone on over this um, has revealed that this extends way beyond teenagers. Um, 2021, a study was done, and this is, this is actually one of the predominant worldviews, I guess you could say, of Americans. Uh, here's what I find really interesting, though, about uh, people that hold to these beliefs. Uh, three out of four, about 75%, about three out of four of, of uh, people that hold to, to these beliefs call themselves Christians. If this is your view of God today, let me say something. Uh, this is not Christianity. Um, this is not the God of the Bible. And it certainly is not the God who confronts Isaiah and confronts us today. Now, this may look like an attractive way to live because it seems like it ties into some of our, our um, you know, common values like tolerance and uh, you know, live and let live. Um, but I'll say this, this will give you zero resources to navigate the hard points of life. Zero. When you go to the doctor and the news is bad, or your child is born with a disability, 
or you see your life savings evaporate, or um, uh, you look in the mirror and there's more wrinkles and gray hair or, and, or no hair um, than, than the week before. Um, let me tell you, belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives is going to give you zero resources for dealing with hard things. Idols will always fail you. They will always fail. So what's the antidote to this? The antidote to this is God's holiness. The antidote to idolatry is God's holiness, his otherness, his moral perfection, his set-apartness, his holiness. Did you notice, though, Isaiah, so far, he's, he's, he's watching this. Um, he's watching it. He's, he's a spectator right now. In effect, I like to think he's, he's kind of in the stands. Okay. Uh, he's about to become a participant. He's about to get onto the field. You know, we went to see a baseball game last week um, because my incredibly fantastic daughter, um, sorry, hon, to embarrass you, um, actually got us tickets to see the Nats uh, for Father's Day. Um, I got to say just one thing. I do have the best kids in the world. Um, the, the rest of you, I'm sorry that you have to deal with your kids. Mine are the best in the world. Um, so we, we went to see the Nats, um, and um, you know, nice, good, good seats and everything. Hadn't been to a ball game in a while. They lost, of course. It's that kind of that kind of season. We're rebuilding, they say. Um, so sat there in the stands, and uh, uh, it was 42,000 of us that day. It's big, big. Um, a lot, lot of tickets sold that day. It was Ryan Zimmerman weekend, I think. That's what drew everybody in. So just just happened to realize I'm sitting there and. Um, 42,000 of us in the stands, and um, there's you know, nine, nine people playing the game. I guess 10, right, with the batter, right? And, you know, scattered umpires and coaches. And, okay, 42,000 of us in the stands, and um, they're playing. The players are there. We're here. The players are there. Um, that's Isaiah. He's, he's here. He's about to go there. And it begins with Isaiah's unraveling. <laughs> We're going to call this part Isaiah's confession. So Isaiah has heard holy, 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 the thrice holy God um, description come out of the mouths of the seraphs. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, woe is me, I am ruined. Another way to translate that is, I am silenced. And he goes on, I'm a man of unclean lips. My lips are unclean. My lips are unclean. What is he thinking? What is he thinking? You, you seraphs are singing this holiness of God, but I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why, why unclean? I'm reminded of something that Jesus said about the heart. Uh, some of you are familiar with this passage. In Luke 6.45, where Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is what, is, what is in here eventually comes out here. Um, and you'll know that if you've ever driven with me in traffic. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah could have responded differently, couldn't he have? You know, I mean, here's the thing. He's in the temple, right? He's familiar with the temple. He's a, he's a priest. He could have invoked his pedigree, right? Hey, I'm a priest. Um... I belong in here. Um, how hard can that song be to sing? It's not that complicated. We sing far more complicated songs on Sunday morning than that. 
How hard can that song be to sing? Um, Holy, holy, holy. No, Isaiah. No, you're not ready for that. You're not ready to join in that song of holiness. The moral ground where you're standing is not able to bear that weight. And Isaiah knows this. He knows this in his gut. In his gut, he knows. And Isaiah provides the proper human response to being confronted with God's holiness. What is the proper human response to being confronted with God's holiness? It's confession. It's confession. It's being honest with God about our moral failings. It's confession. It's being honest. You know, some of you may be familiar with uh, 12-step programs. Um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was, uh, was the first one and maybe the most famous, but there are other recovery programs that that uh, you know, uh, uh, bring people through the 12 steps. And, and um, the fourth step, I think, is, uh, I love the way this is phrased. The fourth step is a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I'll say that again because I think it's amazing. A searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It seems that Isaiah does this on the spot, or at least partially. He makes a, mm, a searching and fearless moral inventory of himself. And, and do you notice there's not a shred of spiritual snobbery in what Isaiah says? Um, he says, I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, from our perspective, uh, he was probably better than a lot of people. You know, he was probably more observant of God's laws. He was probably better morally than a lot of other people around him um, who were going to the high places and sacrificing uh, in, in, uh, in uh, contradiction to what God had said. But in light of the absolute holiness of God, his response was, God, I am no better than anyone else. And I'm put in mind of what Paul says in Romans 3.23, where he says in that wonderful passage, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The solidarity of sinners. We're all in that boat together. He confesses. Confession is honesty. It's going to God and saying, I, I'm messed up. I am messed up. Isaiah is unraveled, not by God's muscular power, but by his moral perfection. I'll say that again. Isaiah is unraveled not by God's height, but by his holiness. Isaiah is not unraveled by God's immensity, but by his purity. He sees God, he perceives the holiness the otherness of God, and he feels dirty. This is a common human response to God. God gets close, and what do we get? We get uncomfortable. We want to run away because there's something about the real God that makes us very uncomfortable. I think there's some people in here today that that's describing. Let's, let's sit here for a second with Isaiah. Before we go on, Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God, his failures, his moral failure has been confessed. What is God going to do? Something odd happens next. One of the seraphs goes to the altar with tongs and he takes a glowing coal and he puts it on Isaiah's mouth. Your unclean lips, Isaiah, this is going to make them clean. Your sins, your guilt, gone. Your uncleanness, gone. 
your unworthiness to be here, gone, gone, gone. I read this and I wonder, did it hurt? Did it hurt? Did Isaiah have scars on his mouth the rest of his life? You know, we don't know. I imagine that if he did, he would have said it was worth it. But here's what we do know, that he was forgiven. How can a coal do that? Last week, we did the fire pit, okay, in the backyard. Of course, we do it, you know, far enough away from the house to make sure the house doesn't go up in flames. Um, and, and, you know, me being the most fantastic Boy Scout of all, it only took me 15 minutes to get the fire going. Um, I think I used up, um, I don't know how much dryer lint. I think uh, everything we, we had, we used, um, you know, probably a stack of newspaper to get that thing going. And uh, I think my son came over and finally said, Dad, I think you need some help. And, you know, with, with his assistance, we were able to get the fire going. And there's a, there's a, a time when the, when the wood burns down, and you probably have seen this, and you've got those beautiful hot glowing coals in the, in the pit. But how does, that, how, does, how does that grant forgiveness? We usually think of fire as purification. Uh, but that's not how it's used in the Bible. I'm going to quote a commentator on this. Someone, uh, Alec Madier, was actually given most of, his, most of his professional life to studying this book. Um, and he, he says, in the Old Testament, fire is not a cleansing agent, but is symbolic of the wrath of God. Um, his unapproachable holiness and the context of his holy law. The live coal which was brought to Isaiah was fire from the altar. The perpetual fire on the altar went beyond symbolizing divine wrath, for the altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice. I'm going to repeat that. The altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice. Did you follow that? Did you get that? If, if there are live coals in the temple, it means that a sacrifice has been made. It means that God's righteous opposition to sin has been satisfied. In effect, what Isaiah is being told is, Isaiah, you knew that your lips were dirty, and I took care of that, but I also took care of the source of that. I cleansed your heart. Your guilt is gone. You're clean, Isaiah. You are clean. And now you're ready to hear the call. The next voice that Isaiah hears is God's voice. And what's happening next is God is allowing a cleansed Isaiah to basically sit in on the heavenly court and listen. And God asks a question. Who will go for us? Does anyone else find it odd that God is asking a question? Um, You know, the Bible is pretty clear that God knows everything. So when God asks a question, he's not doing it to increase his knowledge. Um... When God asks a question, he's not, he's not looking to increase his store of information. When he asks a question, he's eliciting an answer from us. He is moving us to respond. Who will go for us, the royal plurality of the heavenly court? And Isaiah speaks, and he says the three words that change everything. He says, here am I. Send me. Okay, that's five words but you get the picture. Here am I. I'll go. All right, s- sorry to geek out for a second on this. Um, 
those of you that know me know I'm a big, I'm a big Tolkien fan. I know Lord of the Rings and, you know, love that. I've read the books probably a few times. And um, uh, Peter Jackson, I think, did a somewhat good job with the, with the movies, capturing the, the texture of, a, of, of the books. Um, uh, there's a scene early on in, in uh, I guess it's the first movie, um, where it's, it's realized that this ring of power has to be returned, has to be thrown into the fire in Mordor. Sorry to geek out on you. Um, and and uh, all the characters are together in the house of Elrond. So you've got the dwarf and the elf, and you've got Gandalf, and you've got the hobbits there, and they're fighting. Um, hey, well, no, maybe we should keep the ring, or, or who's, who's going to take the ring back? Um, well, I'll, I'll do it. No, I, no, I'll do it. And it turns into a fierce argument. And all of a sudden, you hear um, Frodo, in his small hobbit voice, jumps up and he says, I will do it. I will take the ring. But I do not know the way. That's Isaiah here. You know, he didn't know exactly what he, was, uh, what he was getting into. He didn't know exactly where he was going. I don't think he knew exactly what he was signing up for. But he was available. He was available. You know, and embedded in God's question, I want to draw this out. There's a, a profound theological truth. The Bible is very clear. Let me say this. The Bible is very clear that God, God is not needy. God is not needy. God does not need anything. God, God is overabundantly full in, him, in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overabundantly full in himself. Uh, he, does, he doesn't need anything. God has no lack. All right, I'll, I'll, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord, the psalmist says. God does not need anything, but God has elected to accomplish his purposes through people. God accomplishes his purposes what he's doing on this planet, he accomplishes his purposes through people. He doesn't need us. He didn't need Isaiah, but he made a sovereign choice to enlist humanity in his cause. So what was Isaiah's call? It was to speak God's words, to draw back a wayward people to God, to, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to use every literary power at his disposal to woo them, to win them back, to ravish them, ravish their hearts with the holiness of God, to uh, poem them into obedience, to prose them into faith. And he did this for the next 40 years. Um, and the book that bears his name, one of the main themes is, is the holiness of God. It's also known as the fifth gospel because this cleansed and called Isaiah gave us the supreme messianic predictions that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So you, oh, this is when the preacher now turns himself to the congregation. Okay, preacher man, what are you going to say to us now? Some of you have had, uh, have never had this kind of encounter with, with God. And this is strange and somewhat, somehow wonderful to you. Um, you're outside of faith. So you're, you're standing outside of faith. You might even be a moral therapeutic deist. And if you're on the outside looking in, let me tell you that today you can be in. You can be in. You, you're going to stay in the stands 
Uh, but God wants to cleanse you. He wants to get you on the field. And how is that possible? Because there was a sacrifice made for you, Jesus himself. Your forgiveness is waiting for you. All you need to do is be honest uh, with God and ask. It's that simple to walk into faith. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's that simple. Now, others of you have had an encounter with God, maybe not as dramatic as this, although some of you I know have. I know some of your stories. Some of the encounters you've had with God are dramatic. Uh, Maybe it was this morning. Um, Maybe it was years ago, but you are still in the stands. You've allowed a hundred different things to separate you from God. I'll throw out a few. Your busyness, right? I mean, we're too busy. Uh, Your guilt, uh, something you did or something you didn't do. Um, Shame, uh, regret. You've allowed that to keep you in the stands. You've allowed that to keep you away from God. You can release that today. Be honest with him. Just be honest. That's confession. Just be honest. And he will cleanse you. We have an altar today that always has live coals on it because Jesus is our sacrifice, perfect, once for all sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews says. That forgiveness is there. That cleansing is there for us. All we need to do is be honest. Now, others of you, you said, here am I to God a long time ago. A long time ago. You were in the game. You were on the field. You were getting dirty. You were making plays. But you went back to being a spectator. How did that happen? You know, in uh, in, uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the biographies of Jesus in chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and that's the the person that spreads uh, seed to to grow. And uh, Jesus explains that and says that seed being spread, that's actually the word of of God. Um, And he talks about how the, um, verse 19 of of Mark 4, um, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The word gets choked out in our lives. Worries, wealth, and desire for more. I can't think of a better description of my life as in Northern Virginia in in 2022. Some days I'm enormously distracted by worry. Um, uh, The wealth, right? Gee, how's my portfolio doing? I don't know. How's the market doing today? I'm happy when it's up and I'm sad when it's down. Really? Really, John? And what's my most visited website? It's Amazon. Yeah. We get choked out. Choked out. And there are other things too, right? Disappointment. Ah, life hasn't gone the way I expected it to. Or sometimes we just, we we have a deep fatigue that we can't get rid of. Um, I know in my own life, I've said here I am to God, um, but it's, it's not worked out exactly as I expected. There are lots of detours and a lot of waiting. Um, God, I thought I was going to play first base. What was I doing in the outfield? And um, you know what? Uh, other things start to look really, that skybox. Okay, oh, that looks really good. I can get off the field, and I bet, that's, I bet the air conditioning there is really good. Did you notice, too, when Isaiah said, 
here am I. He did not have the whole picture of what he was taking on. Did you get that? He didn't have the whole picture. You know, for, for us, for, for us, we don't get the whole picture. You know, Isaiah just knew it was time to get out of the stands and onto the field. For us today, we're not going to get the whole picture. I know we want that, right? Well, well God, what's, what's my position description going to look like? You know, God, can I, before I say, here am I, can I see the statement of work so I can see exactly what I, no. Can I see steps 1 through 39? No. 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 Are we going to say, here am I? Are we going to say that today? So this, this is for us, church. This is our confrontation today. God is confronting us today with himself. What are we going to do with this? How will we respond? Stand with me, please, and let's, let's pray. You know, before we pray, I just want to talk about a uh, conversation I had with a, with a brother over this passage and actually over the whole series. And, um, you know, I was, I was starting to ask, well, what, what, what if, you know, about Isaiah? You know, what, what if things worked out differently? And, and um, you know, a uh, good Christian brother told me, well, I don't do, you know, I don't, I don't do what ifs. I just do what's, what's written. Um, and I think that's, I think, yeah, that's, that's exactly, if you're going to preach the Bible, preach the Bible. You know, don't, don't go beyond it. I think he's exactly right. But I have to say, you know, because I have to have that weird kind of mind, I like to think of what ifs. Um, what if Isaiah would have heard the call and not taken it? Um, think God may have gotten somebody else. Uh, we wouldn't have the book of Isaiah, that beautiful, the supreme messianic um, uh, uh, vision in, in the Old Testament. We wouldn't have that. Um, what about for Isaiah? What, what was his, his life? What would his life have looked like? I mean, he would have, he would have kept his status. He would have kept his education. Um, he would have lived his life. He would have, you know, married and, and uh, you know, had kids. And um, he would have seen his country kind of fall apart around him. Uh, wouldn't be able to do anything about it. What about us? What if, what, if, what if we don't say, here am I? I think for us, we'll, hey, we live in the suburbs, right? We'll live nice lives. We'll live nice lives. We'll probably have nice homes and nice cars, like the ones I always pass on Sunday morning, driving on 50, uh, you know, the, the, the sports cars that come out once a week. Um, We'll, um, we'll have nice lives. Um, we'll probably have nice jobs. And we'll retire from our nice jobs one day and have a nice retirement and, and deal with life. But, but let, me, let me ask you this, and, and I, I can't answer this for you. Don't you want more than that? Don't you want more than that? Yeah, you can have that. And that could be the end, you know. And you know what? Let's throw something in there. Let's throw a little involvement with church. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw that in. I, I get involved a little bit. But don't you want more than that? Don't you? I, I do. And, and here's why. It's because God has put it in me. I, I didn't ask for it. I, 
And those of you, I know God has worked in, in you to want that too. And I don't think it's our, I don't think it's our natural Northern Virginian 21st century acquisitiveness to want more. I don't think that's what's speaking. I think it's, I think it's that we want more. We want more of God. We want, to, we, want to be, we want to be used by God. We have a destiny here in this time, in this place. We are here for such a time as this. This is our appointed time. Don't you want that? Pray with me, please. Lord, I feel like you have um, you've spoken to us today, Lord. And Lord, I know a lot of times you, you set us off on a process. And um, you know, even if this is a process for us, Lord, I know you want us to take the first step. Lord, there might be people here that uh, they just don't know you. You know, they just, they were not raised with you and you've always been uh, just a non-cohesive idea to them. Um, and I pray for those people that might be listening today. Don't know you, but today is their day. They could say, here am I to Others of us, God, we have, um, well, we've said, here am I, and we have, uh, we've, we've left the field and gone back to the stands, and I know you're calling us to get back in the game, get back in the game. Lord, as, as much as we know of ourselves, we bring to you at this moment, we, we, um, we confess our, our moral failings. Word says all have sinned, that's us. That's us, God. That is us. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us. And we respond to your call today, Lord. And we don't know what it looks like. Each one of our lives, I know it's going to be different, but as much as we're able to, Lord, we say today, here am I. Use my life.